something to say. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, or as that person who put really weird music up on the streaming services recently that uh, now I have to put art and stuff up because I just got my official artist account over on Apple. I got my notice that I'm about to get my official artist account over on Spotify, and it's freaking me out in some of the good ways, I think. <laughs> But yeah, it has been a crazy week. There's a lot of things to talk about. But before we get started, hello to Laura. Hurrah! Hurrah! Today, we are going to be talking about style over substance. We're going to be talking about spectacle and how it is just ruining everything. Or in some cases, making it better, because that's the point of the whole thing. But first... My name is Laura Nettles. I am a lighter for visual effects for TVs and movies. I have been dabbling in writing. My first short story was published this month. And yeah, I enjoy horror. I enjoy sci-fi. I enjoy fantasy. I enjoy lots of stuff. I do too. And then I enjoy a lot of stuff that just comes in at the end and goes, <laughs> you thought we were going to be good. Not that I'm bitter. Not that I'm, well, I'm bitter. I'm just come out with it. So the reason for this episode is I just finished watching Star Trek Discovery because I put it off knowing that it would, in the end, live up to all of my expectations of it and let me down. And I'm not saying that it completely did. Like, they were really smart in the denouement on there that, like, tugged at the heartstrings and actually almost, almost, just almost, like, my eyes moistened a bit. Not, not like, full tears, but, like, they had the triumphal music playing, like, the story mm -hmm. at the very, very end. But getting there, getting there was painful and problematic and a thing that I really would not like to go through again. And I thought to myself, you know... I could either do what I would normally do, and that's a 30 to 50 to an entire podcast, all arguing how they could have done things better, as I, I may have done all of those things in the past. Or we could just talk about the fundamental flaw in this mm -hmm. and how it is becoming problematic. Because I know a lot of the listeners and a lot of the viewers are writers, because like attracts like, and I talk a lot about my writing career, and that's this 
this horrible need for spectacle because I can see the story they wanted to tell. And don't worry, I'm not going to like spoil much of anything. And honestly, if you're interested in this and you haven't already been spoiled because of the reaction, the moment the episode aired and you find out, wait, that's what the whole season's been about. You're a better person than I am at avoiding spoilers. I'm just going to say that because I knew like by, because it came out that morning and by about 11 a.m., I knew how the episode ended <laughs> because I loaded social media and that's all my page was. Uh-huh. I opened up YouTube and like about a quarter of all the videos that it recommended were really that. And they like didn't even cover it up. It was like right there in the in the thumbnail and the description and the, and the title of the video. Like, oh, yeah, it, it, you're amazing if you have not been spoiled. But I see the story that they wanted to go for. And this happens way, way too often, way too often, because I do, I see the story that they wanted to tell, and it's a good story. It's it's a story about hope and loss and really speaking to everything that's been going on right now, how to deal with tragedy and how to overcome adversity. Like, I see all the themes that they were going for, but, and this is not a spoiler because it's just a scene that randomly happens. You, you don't need to show me that basically the entire interior of the ship is just open void space with nothing going on in it that but turbo lifts flying around in random directions on gravitational lifts just kind of flying around randomly like a weird episode of actually four episodes of star wars the clone wars that i saw where they did various train heists for no reason because now all i know is if we have another captain picard day and the turbulence fail everyone's dead there's no mechanical parts anymore everything just floats around on magic space light through a giant chasm and void where one of the fights literally ends by them throwing somebody out into the giant void in the center of the ship and them splatting when they hit the ground because there's nothing to stop them from plummeting to their death because apparently why would it just be that big then if they have that much it's spectacle, pure spectacle. It's it, it was so much more energy to move a ship that size. It was a beautiful shot. Like if this was like, okay, so if you remember in I think it was Attack of the Clones, where they're doing the chase through Coruscant, and th- there they are like whipping through the buildings, and it's really pretty. No matter what you thought about the movie, like it's really pretty. Like the ships and like, oh, is he gonna fall? La la la. It's basically that scene. Except in the interior of the turbo lift network <laughs> inside of the ship, which apparently has a pocket dimension on the inside of it. Why? <laughs> it's interesting because not only do they have spectacle for random throwaway shots just to make it beautiful, but there's also spectacle that they build into the, the climax of the story or even just how they shoot the story in general. Like, I worked on the new Monster Hunter movie and that was a lot of... So when they filmed the shots, they would make sure the sun was behind whatever they were shooting so everything was beautifully backlit and everything is a little bit more mysterious. And so... Nothing has continuity because they would rotate the sets throughout the day, like in the desert. And all of our shots, we had to figure out where's the monster moving? How do we put the sun there? It's the exact opposite of the exact shot right before this. Who cares? The director wants it backlit. Go for it. 
So like even the microscopic micromanagement detail, there's also spectacles sometimes of just trying to make it look cool. There's spectacle on every every level. Back when I originally watched the Watchmen movie, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie, and I didn't know as much about Zack Snyder then as I do now, my original complaint about it was how they misunderstood that there were no heroes in the story. And the obsession with spectacle and weird slow motion shots that frame everything as heroic made that made the message of the movie change. And I still think that that's true to a certain degree, but then realizing that he actually thought that Rorschach was the good guy, even though he was the racist, anti-Semitic monster who just wanted a fascist state that would allow him to beat people up for being bad. Okay, Zach, you do you. But that's the moment that it like crystallized in my brain because I didn't think there was anything to him but aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I still feel that way. There are certain directors that when you go to a Zack Snyder movie or you go to a Michael Bay movie, you're not there for the movie, you're there for the aesthetic. You know what you're going to get, and it's not a story. It's just a certain look that is going to last for a certain amount of time. It is a protracted music video with a lot more dialogue than you would expect. This director that I've worked on a couple of his projects now, the guy who did Monster Hunters, the guy who did the Resident Evil movies. And so you definitely pick up that style of, okay, you need to have the fastest edit cuts ever that will give you a seizure with flashing lights. And so we would animate and light this monster with a flashlight going like this in the dark. And it's just monster here and here, two frames, cut here and here, cut. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, this director, like nobody's going to be able to see what's going on. It's worse than a Jason Bourne movie, like shaky cam and just close up and everything. And nobody knows what on earth is going on. Even if you're making the movie, you don't know what's going on. Oh my gosh, just the editing quick cuts kill me. And I have seen this bleeding even into fiction, even into prose fiction, where that aesthetic of the very quick scene cut, the very like sparse description, very sparse dialogue, like there's a place for staccato writing. Like, I'm not going to say that there isn't. If you want to speed the pace of your story up, short, punchy sentences with as few syllables in each word as you can possibly do, it does make you feel like you're moving faster. You want to slow it down, mm -hmm. you longer sentences, longer words, it slows the pace down. Okay. I have read several, and this always boggles my mind when they're tradi traditionally published books, that are using this simply for effect, not in service of the story. The scene that you're reading is actually quite dull. Okay, style over substance actually works in movies and in shows, and I always get pilloried when I start talking about this, but Death Note is aesthetic brought to the highest level. I love Death Note. I do too. But let's be honest, light writing names into the Death Note is the most boring possible thing that you well, can ever find. potato chips and it's the cat and mouse and it's all these little things. Oh, and the because music. Of the style, right? This is one of those places where style actually makes substance because you wouldn't feel the tension between, between light and well, anyone else in the story, if it wasn't for these wonderful protracted monologues 
where, and then I have a potato <laughs> Like, the sheer over-the-topness of it is the message, right? It, it tells you the story. It's not just there for the sake of being there. But and also, I've seen, it's in not the book, all extremely over-the-top, quick, quick. It's It has the lulls where you have the internal monologues where he's trying to figure out somebody's name and they're walking down a sidewalk and he's freaking out in his head. And so it's a very slow pacing and but his mind is going a mile a minute. But the pacing like on screen of them just walking and having a conversation is very slow. And it's the contrast of quick, quick, slow and just that dance of keeping people interested ramping it up, but then pulling it back, let you digest it, let you figure out what's going on. And it's that, just that dance of pacing is amazing. But this author, and I will say, because it was a traditionally published book, their editor must have thought that that was an aesthetic that you could apply to exposition dumps. Mm -hmm. And because we're using this quick cut, quick word, like, like trying to make it like scream, like, light eating potato chips crazy you'll get through it it'll be fine it'll be wonderful and no no because it just it didn't fit in the story it didn't serve the story when you watch death note death note has that character to it that's why i say it is the aesthetic that carries the story on because even before he got the death note light is kind of that overly obsessive teen kid Mm mm-hmm and you see that just be augmented even more now that he literally has the power of life and death in his hands. Yeah. To the point where he has literal gods of death going, are, are, you, are you sure you want to do this, dude? Uh, he's going to like completely mess this up, isn't he? Like, uh, like when the gods of death are whispering that you might mess up the world, uh-huh. you, you've gone too far. But it works with the aesthetic. It works with the story. It's not just a style that's thrown on top of it to excuse bad writing. Style can't fix bad story. Right. Which is why the later seasons of Death Note... Yeah. That's why I only own the first season on disc. Because it works so well until it doesn't. Because the story's not there. The story doesn't justify what happens later. And it shows how even in the same series, it can't sustain a bad story. The cat and mouse is what made that story amazing. It yes. knew what it was, and it stuck to it. I see people in chat bringing up Spirited Away, Kiki's Delivery Service. The yeah, that that mm-hmm. there's a look and feel to Spirited Away that the the spectacle there, you're experiencing it just like she is. Mm-hmm. You're in the same awe and wonder at everything that you're seeing, all the bizarre things that you're seeing as she is. Because you followed this uninitiated character into the this un, completely unknown world. And the stranger it is, the better it actually serves the story. Because mm-hmm. they don't think like us. They don't act like us. Like It's a big part of her understanding how to operate and live in the world is, oh, I have to throw away my human mis- preconceptions at how the world works. Like The Miyazaki films have such a unique aesthetic that people can instantly recognize it. Yep. But they don't just like it for the aesthetic beauty of the movies. They like it for the stories as well, because the stories support the beauty of it. You actually connect with it and feel with it with either Totoro or Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle. Take your pick. Yeah. But just it's not just style. There's also substance to the stories. And, you know, one of the things that really gets me about this is 
I see a lot of writers obsessing, are my chapters too long? Are they too short? Are my scenes too long or too short? One of my favorite books of all time is Amistad Maupin's Tales of the City. The opening chapter, I don't think any of the scenes are longer than a hundred words because you're establishing the frenetic pace of this girl entering the city for the first time. And so you're meeting all the new places and all the new people. And it's it's dizzying. It's this, this whirlwind of, of description that just brings you right into her mind, right into her state of being. Because every time you meet a character, oh, no, she's got to go to work now. And so you're meeting somebody else. And so something else is going on. Oh, but now she's got to go find a place to live. And, 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 and it is beautifully disoriented because you're there with her and when it finally you meet miss madrigal and the story slows down and the story goes on for a little bit before the pace quickens back up this is where style is important for us to learn to make the story the size it needs to be the story it wants to be and not worry about whether we're living up to an arbitrary line on things. And that's where style over substance really comes in. Glory and Tom have shown up. Glory and I were actually just talking yesterday about one of, you know, the real skills Glory recently kind of really figured out this past year, especially, you know, through talking on the show, was about using, about the the setting and the, remember we were talking about not genre, the, um, not premise. Huh? Story form, it turns out, I thought it was story frame, story but it turns form. out story yeah. frame is something else. And the, the effects of the story form on the story you can tell. It's been a it's been a challenge for me for like over a decade uh, where it's like I have a story premise or I have a story idea and then I'm not entirely sure of how I was saying how to frame it. But it turns out that story frame, they call something else anyway. But so what uh, I guess Wikipedia at least calls story form, but the form to use like so epistolary stories versus um you know, where you use, say, for instance, the character maybe is unraveling things backwards uh, and some of the issues with the unreliable narrative and we may maybe they use you're using as the form little bits of note paper and and like a scrapbook or something that like there's a lot of different ways like again i would say frame it uh, but there <laughs> there are different ways to tell a whole different variety of stories that is uh, regardless of genre. So genre has certain conventions, but then it's like, but I I need to like give a frame. And again, it turns out it's a form of how to easily and quickly communicate to the reader what to expect beyond genre. So that was a challenge. It is still, I guess, technically a challenge. But recently I felt like I leveled up as a writer. Recently, last week, I was like, oh, but if I if I instead put it in the form of the beginning of a video game or the beginning of a game, like here you are, you are the main character and here's what happens to you. That would absolutely make sense to the reader. And they could immediately jump in without me needing to do hardly any exposition at all. And that's what I mean about having that makes such a huge difference from the reader's perspective because I want the reader to be able to jump in immediately and start exploring this world with me. It's, it's one of the reasons why I, I often say that Dracula is my favorite horror novel and it's because it's written as an epistolatory novel. Yes. The Dracula that I read is not the Dracula any of you read. 
because the vast majority of the story is how you piece together the elements because it's newspaper clippings it's journal journal entries it's letters back and forth between the characters and how you knit that story together is going to be different from how i knitted that story together and so there's a much more visceral experience for someone like me who loves putting things together it's why call of cthulhu again one of my favorite lovecraft stories why it's essentially the same thing oh it's in my uncle died i got a bunch of stuff from him let's see what's in the box journal entry newspaper article yeah and you have to like i love that about it like it's essentially a mystery because you are piecing things together it's very fun for the reader it makes the story so powerful actually have on the subject of style over substance we watched a couple nights ago a, an old movie from the 80s called Roxanne which was Steve Martin's sort of modern retelling of Cyrano de Bergerac and I'm watching this and I mean it's got a great cast of actors in it I mean it is a really good cast but it's like what's wrong with this movie as I'm watching this I'm like I'm just running through everything and what I eventually realized is one this story would be perfectly acceptable if all these characters were in high school because then all their motivations would be correct for the behavior but they're adults we don't expect adults to be overly emotionally driven as all these characters are and for arguments to start without a real basis they just happen in this story and Steve Martin essentially is sticking to they set out to write this story they set out to write a modern version of Cyrano and they're going to stick with it, even if this is not actually within their wheelhouse. And so you get a lot of the overture ideas of Cyrano, but you don't get the same kind of closure. It ends up feeling very forced because the per- you know, Steve Martin wrote it from a very, well, incompetent place. This is one of the reasons why cast is, especially for film and television, is so much more important than the words that are on the page. Not everyone is Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is a versatile actor who has shown that he can do a tearjerker, like, break-your-heart drama movie. He can also do Big. And I love Big. And he could do Bachelor Party. I'm sorry, I want to remember, he did a movie where the main joke is about when is this woman going to have sex with a mule? Because he's gotten a lot of gravitas over the years. But he got his start playing a character who did drag so that he could get a job. And he did a movie all about when is that woman going to have sex with a mule? I see you, Tom. I'm not letting the world forget. There's range there, right? Not every actor can do that. And this is where writers and directors mess story up. And it's mm-hmm. often not their fault. Like the news we you noticed in Roxanne, Daryl Hannah. Can play the ingenue whether she's 20 years old or 50 years old. Somehow she could still play the ingenue, but that's her acting range. Do not put her into a more serious, dramatic, emotional role. She, it's not her. And that's the character that she plays in Sensei wonderfully as the mother. Mm-hmm. And she pulls it off so beautifully because you don't pull them out. But this is what. This is why the new Scooby-Doo has such mixed reviews, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm a Scooby-Doo fan. It's the voice actors. They're all fine, competent actors. Is that really what Shaggy sounds like? This is the problem, right? These characters have been around so long and have had so many people play them. But there's a certain way that we're used to Shaggy sounding, no matter who's doing the voice. I know, versus, uh, what's his name? Matthew Lillard? 
can still at any convention pull off Shaggy on a moment's notice with any yeah. kid, and they have plenty of videos of it. It is yep. still adorable. And I don't understand if he was doing the cartoons still, why they didn't just continue him on in the role. Because they wanted a named actor that would draw people in, even though it wasn't what was best for the story. The, the story itself is a perfectly good Scooby-Doo story. The voice cast felt off because most of the actors were doing themselves and not the character, because that's where we're at here. This is the, this obsession with celebrity culture that has just corrupted so many productions where, oh, we need somebody with a name for this. No. No, 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 we, we don't. someone who's related to the director. And so mm. they're not going to get mm. on that acting job, even though they are just straight-faced, play the exact same character every movie. I say versus Scooby-Doo, you show up for Scooby-Doo, and these characters that have been the same kind of characters throughout, that's what they're looking for. People are not showing up for so-and-so can play this, is now voicing this character. I mean, back when he, even when he was famous, Michael Rosenbaum was voice acted a lot of cartoons and a lot of action and kids cartoons, but he was actually a good voice actor and that's why he got hired. It wasn't for the name and most time they didn't mention his name because they were afraid people would then be thinking about the actor instead of the character they were voicing. It's kind of like where, where I get really upset every time they're like, oh, we're going to turn this musical into a movie and we're going to hire big name actress to be in it. And then auto-tune everything and it just sucks you out of the movie. Oh, they're going for that style. They, they know the style they want. They're not look, you know, versus the end, going for the end product. You know, style is where you plan ahead what you're looking for versus substance is working with and creating from what you have. Working within an aesthetic is a very hard thing to do as a writer. It's something that you need to learn because one, every genre has a distinct aesthetic. It doesn't mean that there are things that you can't do. There are some wonderful horror movies, for example, that happen in broad daylight. It's really hard to do a scary story in broad daylight because you can see everything and you don't have that natural, like what's lurking in the shadows thing, but you can do it. But yeah, if you're going to write a horror story, it's probably going to happen in a dark place or at night or some someplace confined and claustrophobic because that just adds to the mood. I have issues with a lot of the big spectacle finales of superhero movies nowadays. Mm -hmm. like, you know how hard it would be to do effects for two people in black suits in a black cave that are both Black Panthers, like, and then like anti-grav, so you can't feel the impact of the punches because they're just kind of like, woo. Oh, oh, I believe that's now called um, pulling a uh, a Michael Bay because none of the Transformers have weight. Like they literally jump on things that do not move. Wonder Woman, not not the new one, the first okay. one. Like, okay, this is the effects are pretty bad, but it's pretty fun. And then you're watching it and Lupin turns into Ares and they have this battle fight of him with the mask. And it's like, Why? I feel nothing. Yep. <laughs> you? Yep. you look ridiculous. 
and everybody turned into the big bad at the end for, of these movies. How much more amazing would it have been if they hadn't gone for spectacle, spectacle and gone for emotional impact of these humans are doing this themselves. It has nothing to do with the Greek god. Like, it would have been so much more impactful and she would have had to learn about the human race so much deeper and come to terms with that if it was just humans doing this to humans, not God pulling the strings. If you're, you know, if you're doing spectacle, it means you don't have the story to carry the audience through. I mean... And Zack Snyder. Okay, it's... Okay. It's right up there with any movie that has boobies in the first 10 minutes, not going to be a well-written movie. Especially if there's no more boobies after that, then you know those were teaser boobies to try to get the audience to stay seated rather than walk out when they still could get their money. Of Spectacle is the same way. Of like, well, I got Spectacle, so I guess I got my money's worth, even though, no, you didn't. You did not get your money's worth of story. Except for much more about nothing. The Kenneth Branagh one. Okay. What, that what wonderful things do you have? Okay, those were, those were like hidden, high, happy boobies. And then we do get to see some boobies again later. Those were Shakespearean boobies. I feel like that's like a different level. I'm just saying, I love that movie. And um, Denzel Washington and Keanu Reeves as brothers. Yes, can I please get in the middle of that? I love it so much when you know I, that people that make the movies or the books or whatever are as big of a fan as you are. Like the beginning of Kung Fu Panda, legend tells of a legendary warrior whose feats were the stuff of legend. Like you know, they had a blast writing that movie. That's the you beginning know. of every Wuxia movie ever. Well, I mean, that's well, that's why like we actually have a folder, you know, where we just have all of their work together, Phil and Lord. Mm-hmm. Because they they all their stories are roughly the same, which is dealing with your father. That's what they're all about. Every single one of them, if Phil and Lord are involved, you know, there's a father. Like Zephyr Kennedy had two dads, so he had to deal with his fathers. So definitely, <laughs> that was them branching out to two dads. Yeah, it's still father problems. Okay, um, but that's what they're good at. So we've talked about how spectacle messes a story. We've talked about how it's overused and abused. But I would like to put forward, there are some times when I'm so sick and tired of people putting substance into my style that I just want it to go away and it needs to end now. And I'm specifically talking about two kinds of movies. One being my kaiju movies. Stop trying to make them meaningful. I'm here to see giant things fight each other or one giant thing destroy a city that's what i'm here for everybody knows that's why we're here i don't care about your your marriage i don't care about why you broke up i don't care about your children give me the giant freaking monster destroying the city please and then don't close the door on it (laughs) oh my gosh because look there's there, there's a time to like make those stories meaningful. There's a wonderful collection of short stories called Kaiju Rising that I highly recommend if you're into this genre. Some of the stories will break your heart. Some of the stories are very touching. Other stories are just rock'em sock'em robots with giant robots, giant monsters. And I'm here for all of it. But I'm so nervous because 
Kong versus Godzilla is coming out, and I want this to be a pure spectacle movie. I don't care who has feels for the ape. I don't care who the ape has feels for. The ape needs to stop crushing on humans. It's wrong. You will destroy them. That is not how bodies work. Like, I don't care who you want to be your girlfriend. Or if, you, if you're going to be aggressive. The beast. Come on. <clears throat> All I want from this movie is what the title says. It's kind of like how they messed up, you know, Batman versus Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Look, you tell me that this movie is Batman v Superman. You know what I want to see? There's only one thing I want to see. It's like telling me, hey, you want to see Rocky fight a Russian? Yes. Yes, I want to see Rocky fight a Russian. I really don't care how his wife's doing. I, I don't care about any of this. I don't care about their children. Just show me Rocky. Fine. Okay, fine. Give me a reason for Rocky to want to kill the Russian. I don't. That's nice. That's nice. Just show me, show me Rocky fight the Russian. There's a certain because I'm sorry. That's what a kaiju movie is. It's why Pacific Rim is the apotheosis of kaiju movies. It's really pretty looking. They put the time and energy in. It has enough of a story that if you need a story, it, it, it's there. But it doesn't get in the way of what I came to this theater to see. And that is giant robots fighting giant monsters constantly. Know your genre, people. Know your genre. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. with a Martha. Yes. Oh, don't put in a Martha. Look, I know when a Michael Bay movie comes out, what I'm getting into. I like fireworks specials. I like enjoying, I enjoy watching fireworks. There are times when I just go on YouTube and search, and search fireworks display and just watch fireworks. There are also times that I want my fireworks to have weird metal shrapnel in them that I can't be hurt by. And I watch a Michael Bay movie because that's what I'm here for. Don't put him in charge of any movie that you think is going to have a story or a substance or a plot. That's not what he does. He does really big budget fireworks movies. Same with Jerry Bruckheimer. Like, I know what I'm getting into when I see these names on on there. Oh, it's a fireworks show with people in it. Okay. And and don't forget uh, middle school young teenage boy uh, humor. Oh, yeah. yeah. There will be references to swinging balls. At some point. Like, that to be right, but seriously, stop ruining a good thing. Well, Billy King of All Monsters could have been a perfect movie, but I don't care about your terrorists. I don't care about your broken marriage. I don't. I love Millie Bobby Brown. Don't get me wrong. I I love her. I adore her. She's a great actress. She's going to be with us for a very long time. She's shown her range. She she's phenomenal. I don't care. Let the monster step on her. I'm here for the monster, not for her. It's true. You're absolutely right. I mean, I 1000% agree. Like, I'm here for the monster. I, I would like, like, at a certain point, I'd like to see close ups of the monster's skin. I want to see texture. I want to see how big it is. So please put it next to Billy so I can compare and contrast and keep the size consistent. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Trying to watch, I think it was Kong Skull Island. Just Kong is like, he's as big as a mountain when the helicopters first come in. And then all of a sudden, he'll, like, he'll fit somewhere. And you're like, wait, what? No, my monster is huge. He will not fit there. Mighty Joe Young could take him on. 
<laughs> Although it does actually bring up, though, you know, the base explosion type movies and this, you know, Snyder movies of they are their own form of substance. Their substance is the spectacle. Well, and that's Zach what Snyder, their substance is. And Zack Snyder is just trying to figure out how many ways he can retell Atlas Shrugged and not get called out for it, which unfortunately was all the way through Justice League. And I'm going to try not to go off on a whole Zack Snyder thing, mainly because both Curio and Maggie Mae Fish, especially Maggie Mae Fish, in her brilliant trilogy that I'm assuming will eventually be a quadrilla, quadrology, because I've seen some of the comments on the third one, and that's what caused the third one to come into being, was the comments on the second one. So I think that this is a series that she may be revisiting for the rest of time, but... They, they have covered this really, really, really well, and I highly recommend if you've never seen, especially the Maggie Mae Fish ones, uh, they they are a masterful thing because she goes back and forth, starting with Dawn of the Dead, between James Gunn's original script and what actually showed up on film. And the differences are profound because I still haven't forgiven him for that movie. I know what he did, and I am not... So many movies, I'm just not, just not. And can I say yes? Okay, so Eva brings up. Eva's killing me here too. Like, Cat and Eva, are you like conspiring to like break us? (laughs) I, I love you both. Okay, so I don't want to go on about the Star Trek thing because I was fired by Paramount over all of that because I didn't actually work for them, but I was in good enough with them that I was getting like early clips and like I was I was on the list where I got like early access to a lot of things until they found out what I was saying about the things that they were sending me. Lens flare, dude, just uh. lens flares in space. Okay, the fact that he goes so far as because I'm one of those people that I watch the special features on like everything because they're half the time my favorite part of the movie because I love the behind the scenes like the behind the scenes to me like even if, even on movies that I absolutely love half the time still the special the, the special edition features are the best part finding out how they made it or why it was made. Lord of the Rings. <sighs> Oh, I've watched all of them. Like I, a couple months ago, I found um, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that Peter Jackson made and put out like a year or two or three ago or something. I don't know, maybe it's seven years. It was seven years ago. And I have like, I just literally made a playlist and just watched all of them. And I fell asleep to them. And then I rewatched the ones I fell asleep watching. And it was, it was wonderful. Watching behind the scenes is what got me into interested into going into the film industry in the first place. Like I loved Cinderella, but my favorite part was fast forwarding through the end of the credits and they would have a snippet on our VHS of them painting the backgrounds and hand animating like her dipping her toes in the water. And just all of the behind the scenes blew my mind. And then Lord of the Rings with Gollum blew oh, my mind. Yeah. And all of these things just everything clipped into place. It was awesome. When J.J. Abrams had to literally say that, and I, 
the tone of his voice, I'm not sure it was a joke. That he was allowed one lens flare in the Force Awakens, or his wife would divorce him. Like he tells this story in one of the special effects, the, the special features that he had. She told him, "You get one. You get one, or I'm leaving you. If there's if there's more than one in here, it's over." Why is she such a hater? The first book, every single angle of the lens Look, flare. I think it was like over 800 lens flares in the first movie. I believe it. Like, like somebody actually counted them. It was insane. It was like, even I was like, no, it can't be more than 300. It was like 870. I don't remember. I looked it up once. The part where he did all of them. They were all hand-crafted artisanal lens flares. And you know what? I appreciate an artist. Okay? And it I'm like, a- lens flare me a movie, okay? One of the best moments in Lower Decks when they're in the holodeck and she yes. turns on the movie and lens flares start yes, happening. Yes, and the place. lens flares. I'm yelling <laughs> Boiler's like, why is every why are there let's flares all over the place? It's just like it's a movie, duh. <laughs> Makes it great, you know, like yes. I feel so seen right now. Which is yes. what Lower Decks was for. It was just yes, yes, we see you. We see the discourse. We know what you're all talking about. And that's the Riker maneuver, even all these years later. Like, why did she have to step over every chair that she sat down on? Why did that have to happen? What was that? Who gave him that direction originally and thought, yes, that's the look. So I have to say, as somebody who never liked Riker much, I'm, we're currently in the middle of our rewatch of Next Gen. And Lower Decks did something to the character in my head because of his portrayal on that show. He's now like my favorite character in TNG. Which that was never the case. Like all these years, I was just like Riker. I could take relief. They recuperated Riker so much with Lower Decks that, like, I think he's my favorite character on TNG now, just because of that. I would like to do an episode on Lower Decks because I don't think there's a way to spoil that show because it has plots. Like, the only real spoiler in the entire show you find out on episode one, and it's just a spoiler because the one character doesn't know. And that's who who she really is in relationship to the other characters on the show. You find that out in, like, episode one. So Boindler is the only one who doesn't know. And you can't so, send her to the Barrett, was it Barrett? Not Barrett. The Briggs. The Briggs. The Briggs. She loves it. She loves it. It's her so, favorite place. <laughs> I would highly recommend if you haven't watched Lower Ducks, start doing your homework. That's probably going to be a thing because I miss talking about Star Trek and not saying, and then it disappointed me when. And that's why we did this entire episode because I wanted to do, like I normally do a recap, like how did I feel about Star Trek Discovery Season 3? It was fine. It it it. it it wasn't as exciting as season two. Season two, I think, was legitimately an exciting season. Like, if you want an action adventure Star Wars, Star Trek show, I think season two was better at action adventure. I, I have a very simple way that I talked with Glory, and she eventually agreed, of how to tell if a Star Trek series is really a Star Trek series 
that is worthy of being Star Trek. And it's very simple. It's got one requirement. Is the actor who plays Tuvok showing up? <laughs> because he is such a Star Trek nerd. Yeah. Love me some Tuvok. Show up for anything, for any reason, at any price. Oh, yeah. So if you're anything. not allowing him around, yes. It means you are not really trying to go with Star Trek. You're trying to make your own thing to make some money. Agreed. Because otherwise, he is like the David Tennant. He's always available. Yep. Always available. He will make time. He, you know, you don't have to pay him. He will just be there at all moments to be too bad. And I love that so much. I did say that I would finally say what my opinion was towards the end of the episode. So if you don't want a spoiler that if you miraculously somehow missed it, because like I said, by 11 a.m. on the day that it came out, I opened my social media pages and there it was like everywhere so if you somehow avoided it this long and you want to continue avoiding it one big spoiler but uh, okay here we go don't make a child responsible for the near destruction of the galaxy it's a bad look isn't it that does not help your story it doesn't make anything better Yes. Okay. So the the a child got upset because he watched his mother die in front of him and caused Starfleet to explode. That's what the plot of this season boiled down to in the end. And I don't feel like it's even worth calling that a spoiler because it's so stupid that. Just yeah, start asking yourself, how are they going to retcon this? Tell me you're going to retcon this. And now that they've made the Guardian of Forever a sentient being who can wander around, he's, he's now the Doctor Who of Star Trek. Like, I don't think people have realized that. They literally made him the Doctor Who of Star Trek. He shows up as an, as an old man with a cane who basically has a TARDIS door that can send people anywhere in time. They, they just created their own internal Doctor Who. So, yeah, don't do that, maybe. Because I get the story that they were wanting to tell. And you can do that without having a child get upset. And he's not even like a special child. He's just a mutant. This isn't like a baby Q got angry through a temper tantrum and blew up Starfleet. No, he's just a run-of-the-mill Kelpian, but his mother was pregnant when they went to this place and the radiation mutated him into somebody who can literally speak through subspace to dilithium crystals and he screamed so loudly Starfleet blew up that's it I watched 13 episodes for this and thus thought why not just talk about other things because I don't have anything else to say to that other than how did this happen how did nobody like did this child never cry before or since he gets scared one more time like he gets just a little scared in one episode and almost does it again and like literally he spent his entire life after that never getting scared or upset apparently or startled startled <clears throat> nobody or ever nightmares right and the solution is well we'll just take him away from the planet and everything will be fine i don't even understand how that would work like i said 
I saw this and I thought the only valid way to talk about this episode was let's talk about all the other times where people have done style over substance because other than that, it's just going to be me screaming at the camera for 45 minutes. Like, I don't know how to do this video. It's just like, you did what now? Like, you literally, like, I could understand, like, you're a dude in your basement. Like, I understand how I can come up with some stupid ideas for a story, right? I'm one person in my office, in the back room of my house, by myself, alone, going, <laughs> you know what would be funny? <laughs> right? And I can come up with some crazy crap. You have a writer's room. You have directors. You have a whole bunch of actors <laughs> that have to say these lines. And at no point in here, because it's not even set up to the point where they couldn't have changed it at the last minute when everybody got that last script. That it was like, oh, it was a crying baby that destroyed the universe. It's not even set up well enough that they would have had to have retconned anything that happened before. It's just, no, no, it's the kid, isn't it? It's the kid. The kid threw a temper tantrum and destroyed the universe. And that is the epitome of style over substance. It is the absolute distillation of it. Because you have a series that is telling this amazing story about people learning to rely on each other when they have no reason to. Michael Burnham is a threat. She is a bad person who betrayed her captain and got most of her crewmates killed. This is how the series starts. And the entire plot arc up to this point in over three seasons is them learning to trust her. Like she did it for, she did a bad thing for what she thought was a good reason. And we're going to cap that storyline off which is actually a really powerful storyline from beginning to finish with, oh yeah, and by the way, a kid had a temper tantrum and blew up the universe. So I, say, I, I can, I can already... Sorry. I worked on a story, not a story, a movie uh, for Netflix. And by the time it gets to us, there's nothing we can do. We just do the effects. It's already been written. It's been shot. But I don't know what was up with their writer's room or what, but they couldn't decide on the ending. They're like, I don't know if it's just a volcano or an alien invasion. So we were on pins and needles for months while they try to make up their mind while we are doing these explosions and dust and lava flows and stuff. And it's like, is it an alien invasion or is it a volcano? They went with neither. They just ended the movie. Wow. What? Wow. What did know that I worked on the last shot of the movie until my family watched the movie and they're like, what? What happened? Like, Wait, that was the end? Uh, what? Oh my god! This just and I'm I'm just at a point here, where this here's where, oh. here's where here's where you um what's the word retreat back into headcanon because <laughs> the the published story is ending is too awful and all yeah in my headcanon the Q did it because Starfleet got too dangerous to the Q and Ooh. so they. And so as per all rules though with the Q, they had to give the power to someone else or else that Q would be held responsible. Ooh, I like where you're going, Tom. This is, yes, this is, I can work with this. Hello, Q. And plus it brings John John Delancey back. Well, he's supposed to show up next season on Picard. That's all you have to change. Yep. It's just that they became a threat to the Q, but the Q have rules about no individual Q can, is allowed to destroy a society anymore. So they just gave that power to an unborn child and just let nature take its course. 
which is no different than the season, the series finale for Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. And it works within the story. Anywho, yeah, this is this is how I do therapy. Let's talk about something completely different so I can get off my chest the things that I'm mad about in the one thing in particular. So thank you all so much for being here. Thank you to everybody who watched. Like I said, I can't believe how many people watched last week's podcast episode when it came out. You all astound me hello if you're still here welcome aboard my name's Laura Meadows. i have a youtube channel where i write stuff and subscribe because these are awesome hi i have a channel called glory writes the blues my name is glory um i have a regular live stream with this one with my brother mondays at 4 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific and uh the we have the, our new show season is coming up. We're going to talk about autism and autism related issues, and then anything else we feel like. It's um, it's called Awkward Sibling Hour for a reason. And Tom is trying to figure out exactly how we can fix everything with the murder board that will soon be appearing behind him. Outro. So I thought I would do one for you. Thank you. And I'm Tom with a Think Fix. Work on story development. That's what I work on and do for the most part. I you know do it with Glory. I'll probably start doing it on my channel, but that is what I enjoy doing. Is you know there's 101 options of how to take your story, and the direction often you know provides the whether we'll enjoy it or not. So you know let's go over obvious problems. So thank you all so so very very much for being here. It it really does warm my heart. I am currently working on my world building and my outlines for my Crimson Wyverns setting, which I am utterly obsessed with. Hopefully you will come along for the ride with that on Wednesday as we go along into more of this. Hopefully I will be getting written. I'm writing, getting back up to speed and doing a novella a week so I can get all 12 written with very, very quickly and get this story done and out into the world. Because I am so much in love with it, and I hope you will be too. As I end everything and have frequently added to my list, let us not forget democracy preserves, Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter, and trans identities are magical. And until next time, you have the courage to ride your dreams into reality, and don't forget to have the fun. Bye.